What's happening, everybody? And welcome back to the Chaplaincy on the Go podcast. I'm your host, Josh Zorhoff. I am a teaching pastor and counselor in the West Michigan area. And this podcast is brought to you by the Fearless Family of Churches. We continue on today with our conversation on loss and grief. We're working through different stories of individuals who have encountered different types of losses. If you remember from our conversation with Deb Brink, grief is universal, but it's also unique. And today we have an opportunity to talk with a man who has gone through a profound journey of loss. My friend Terry Jalsima has agreed to share his story and his experience with suicidal loss. Years ago, Terry lost his wife to her battle with depression. It was a challenging time for Terry and his family, and now almost five years later, he is sharing with us what he's learned over the course of those years as he's experienced the seasons of loss and grief and learning how to take a step forward from it. Terry is the author of a book called One Breath, One Step, Repeat, One Man's Journey Through Grief. Terry is going to share some of what he's learned and some of what he shares in the book, but he's also going to share where he is now and how he's processed through those parts of grief and what has come from it. I'm excited to have you hear from Terry what has happened and what he has worked through. And maybe this will be helpful for you as you navigate a season of loss or grief, either now or in the future. So let's get right into it. Well, here we are. Uh, I've got Terry Jalsma with us. And Terry is a friend of mine, and we've known each other for a, a long time. And we share uh, a journey together. It's his journey, and I've I've been able to be a part of it for a season. And Terry, uh, you're going to tell us a little bit about that journey. But before you start, why don't you just tell us a little bit about you and your family and and help everybody get to know you a little bit. Thanks, Josh. I agree. And I appreciate our friendship over the years. And I appreciate your um, work in my family. How's that? Um, and blessing in my family. So my name is Terry Jelsma. Um, first and foremost, I'm a father. Um, number two, I am a, a veterinarian. Number three, I am a cosplayer. Go Star Wars. Number four, I am a man becoming a man who is constantly changing, refining, and moving forward in life. And so that's, that's sort of the baseline of my definition of myself. And how many, how many kids do you have, Terry? Yeah, so it's, uh, I have seven children. Um, so the oldest is currently 33, 31, 29, 27, two 18-year-olds, and a 14-year-old. So Biz Busy man. We have our moments. And if I understand, I, your daughter just recently got married. That's correct. Yeah. That's my daughter just got married. My other son just graduated from vet school and he's working with me. So it's, it's life is, is exciting and it's, it's, it's always moving, right? It's always changing. 
Always moving, always changing. And before we dive into grief and loss, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this. If you could have any Jedi's lightsaber, which one would it be? Uh, of course, it'd have to be the Dark Lord, Darth Vader. Vader's saber. Yes. Vader's saber. Yes. Yes. Perfect. Sorry, I'm a little. I'm. We're. We're. Uh, I'm on the dark side. I'm Darth Vader. I'm a stormtrooper. I'm a short trooper in the cosplay group. But uh, here it goes. We are bad guys doing great things. You know what? That's that's totally fine. I I want to just share with you something personal that a few years ago a, f- a friend of mine gave me um, a lightsaber, an actual you know Disney Star Wars Edge lightsaber, and it's Mace Windu's. Uh, because who doesn't want a purple lightsaber? That's cool. And it was so cool that my wife said I couldn't put it up in the office just because, you know, it needs to be on display somewhere in our home. But she said I couldn't put it in the living room. So she let me put it in the bedroom. It is mounted. It is mounted to the wall in the bedroom, Terry. So she's amazing. She's she's an amazing woman. And I'm going to dive right in here and um, and talk about an amazing woman that was gone too soon. Yeah. And I'm talking about Marlis. And, um, and I think that just kind of kicks us off into the journey of really uh, depression and where it can lead and how that's impacted your journey and your story. And I'm going to let you take it from there. Uh, Tell us a little bit about, tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah, it's, um, I'll take you back to July 12th, 2019. It's a beautiful sunny morning. I remember the weather as crisp in my mind as ever. And um, woke up that morning, Marl Scott out of bed, gave me a hug and said, I love you. I'm looking forward to the weekend with you. We're going to have a great weekend. Four hours later, um, I found her and she was gone. She died by suicide. And I believe that that was most likely due to chronic anxiety and depression. And I had experienced some of, I had flavors of that depression or more a, let me use this word, sort of a crescendoing depression. It was deep and it was dark and it was long and it was like a valley that she just seemed that she could not get herself out of. Um, the way she talked changed her emotions. She just, and again, you're a clinical therapist, you get this. I mean, it's, it's like she was wearing just a heavy, wet coat and on her mind, not on her body, but her mind, her lenses, everything she looked at was dark and sad and, and it claimed her. It claimed her. And, um, Yeah, um, it was not. It was the beginning of a new journey for us. It was a. It was like God took a book and He closed it and said, "This book is now done, or this chapter of this book is done." And um, I'm giving you a blank book, and we're going to start fresh. And I really didn't want to have a new book to write. I did not want to have a new story. But the life I, I currently live is not the life that died that day. So, mm. I 
remember talking to you on the phone yeah. after I found out. And, you know, Terry, I, I've been doing the soul care work for a long time. And my, it's like someone had just cut the legs out from underneath me and I didn't know what to say. And honestly, I still don't. And you know what? I'm a person who's faced mortality or the mortality of my, of Marlis, my wife, spouse. And um, most days I don't know what to say either because grief is so unique. It's so individualized. Um, I go to counseling at Winning at Home. I'm going to, there's this shameless plug, okay? But they've been great to myself. For the last decade, I was in counseling before Marl even passed. And so I had a sort of natural on-ramp to my counselor and a, just a different conversation. But but here goes, I don't have a PhD in grief, okay? I don't, I don't have special studies. I just have a lived experience. And um, it is... Yeah, grief is is something that's most convoluted, distorted, heavy, mind-altering type process I've ever gone through. And I, I sort of take pride in my logic and my ability to be logical, but in this situation, um, emotions take over your executive functions. Yeah. And you're all over the place. Yeah. And there's no reason, there's no rhyme or reason. It's just haphazard, but it, it tumbles you. It grinds you down. And I even used the word, and I don't want to be this too blunt, but at times I felt like I was eviscerated. Like, yeah, things that belong on the inside of me are not on the outside of me. Yeah. And again, I don't have control, the ability to, to reorganize, put things back together, yeah. um, especially for that first year. So I, I'm listening right now to Kurt Thompson. I don't know if you're familiar with his work at all, but he he wrote a book on shame, the soul of shame. And and he's also written a book called The Soul of Desire. And that talks about our desire for beauty. But when trauma and grief enter into our life, it forces us into kind of a shame spiral. And it actually moves our right brain to our left brain, kind of functioning. And it makes it so we can't connect to other people. It actually, when we're in grief and when we're in loss and when we have this, this shame response, which is this internal story that we tell ourselves, it actually forces us into a place where other people are enemies and we can't connect. And, uh, and, and it also drives us into isolation. And, and in your words, to feel like gutted that everything is out of whack, nothing makes sense, and and you just walk around saying, I got nothing, I got nothing. Amen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I just like I said, the first year I hardly I'll be blunt, there's things I can remember, but they're faint or they're very discreet, right? But it is so foggy. It is a just a opaque, foggy mess. Right. And I wish I could remember more, but I think it was my brain just shutting down and going, Terry, you don't want to remember all this and we're going to protect you from yourself. I think, I think you're right. 
I think the brain had to do that because you were operating on whatever you had, which it, it was enough. It was enough to get out of bed. It was enough to get the kids to school because your kids were, are still in school, but some of your kids were really young and, and it was enough to just, it was enough to just make it through the day. Yeah. It's like a, like your computer going into safe mode. You have Mm -hmm. enough function just to, to see it function. That's, that's sort of my brain. It went to default mode where most of the, if again, or the other analogy I used was like a fuse box in the house there it can't it can't handle all the juice so most god just flips most of those fuses off and then over time six months one year one half year he starts flipping them back on and he's like oh now i gotta deal with this oh i gotta deal with that um that metaphor worked for me because again it, it again being a logical mind but no so much of this of what happened i mean and it was literally one moment you're here yep. and the next moment you are there and again yes. i use the analogy too of you're on a different planet, man. Suddenly you just get dropped and you're in a different planet, different gravity, different oxygen levels. I mean, you struggle to literally breathe. Um, and so not to be that descriptive about grief, but it's, it has that feel, you know, yes. grief is about the feels and the experience, right? So, I really appreciate that analogy that I feel like Terry, that is a perfect analogy for traumatic grief. And you can't prepare for it. It's it, even when you talk about going to another planet. When when astronauts are going to go to the moon or they're going to go out into space, they have years of rigorous training to adapt to a new environment. And you had less than twenty four hours. Yeah. And there's nothing. There's no nothing that can prepare you for that. On top of the loss which was substantial, life-shifting. You also had the trauma. That's a good of, point. I appreciate you bringing it up. Yeah, and I appreciate you bringing that up because, um, again, I can only speak my life experience from suicidal loss. And yes, I am the one who found her. I tried breathing life back into her, but it was too late. I held her for the ambulance Right. And um, so most individuals who experience suicidal loss of a loved one or a child, there's not just the grief of the mortality, meaning a person has gone from life to death, but also the trauma. And so, again, I'm going to just because we're here in this space, stay there just briefly. But if you have a counselor, you need to go to a counselor because this isn't just basic grief work. This is trauma work and grief work concurrently. Yeah, there's that. And you know what I mean by that? I totally know what you mean. In fact, we have referenced this on this podcast pretty much every episode, and I think I'll continue to do so. The only way to heal from trauma and traumatic loss is in the context of safe, confessing community. Absolutely. If you don't have people who you can trust, and honestly, counselors are people you pay to be trustworthy. And that's okay. That is absolutely okay. In our Best world, money I've ever spent. <laughs> you get what you pay for. Yeah. Pe- people call you, you know, at three o'clock in the morning when you've got a cow that's sick, they call you and they pay you because you're good at what you do. 
And a, a good therapist is is the same way. Yeah. Um, a good pastor, or I mean, you you probably don't have to pay pastors. That you know, but no. not. But I should say, not all pastors are skilled in trauma and grief. I again, I that's not my world, but I completely agree because here it is. I've had children who have. I'll just say it, fired counselors and gone to the next because there's no one wasn't a good fit or they had their own trauma in their own perspective of life and they they haven't dealt with their own trauma, so they can't deal with my kids' trauma. You get the picture. Totally. So um no, but to me, community is it is one of those bedrocks for healing. Okay. Because again, I wanna again, I wanna jump a little bit, bear with me my ADD popcorn brain, but here it goes. Um, and I just lost it. There it went. That's how fast the popcorn goes. Um, <laughs> Community is everything. Yeah. You have to, whatever stage you are in grief. And initially for me, it was I had three men in my life who I, and a counselor, who I automatically defaulted to. I just literally, like you, I picked up the phone. I said, uh, uh, you know, here it is. I, I, or else is gone. And those three men in a counselor, more so the three men, they were so instrumental and pivotal and healing for me in that first two years. I'm still processing. I'm still at moments I call them up and go, hey, do you remember this? Because I'm faint. It's coming back to me now. But you sat on the deck with me for like three hours in the 90 degree heat. And I wailed. I was ticked. I was resentful. I was protesting God. And you just sat there and you listened to all that. It was like three hours. Right? And he's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> hardly said a thing but he just sat in that sacred space of my grief he yeah. allowed me to do what i need to do but it starts with a few special forces just as you don't need an army of people just two or three people and then you go from there but you agreed with you you have to have the community and it serves as the beginning of the baseline of the foundation of healing without it i don't see how you heal we are designed to be in community made that way and and Grief and shame are isolating events in and of themselves. They force us basically to turn inward and keep away from people. And you you actually need to have enough people that you trust in your life that can force goodness on you. Yeah. That's a good and way of saying it. Mm -hmm. That, because you don't know what you need. <laughs> That is also correct. You know, I mean, how many, I mean, and again, I mean, we'll just be honest. How many times did people say, Hey, do you need anything? And you're like, yeah, well, can we help? I, yeah, I don't know. Please don't please. In fact, please don't ask me if I need anything because that just causes me to say, now I have to think about what I need. And yeah. I, I, I'm just trying to get out of bed in the morning. Yeah. I don't have the cerebral horsepower to make decisions. And you say, you know, well, you're a doctor and three weeks later, I was making decisions, but I was living in a completely compartmentalized state as best I could until exactly. the grief hits you and I've taken a walk out to the back to cry. Right. But yeah, so if you desire, desire to make food, make food. If you desire, as again, a close friend, as a confidant, um, one of the pillars in my life, you come over. I will make room for you, right? And um, but I don't have the executive function or the cerebral horsepower to to do I want this? Do I want that? No, no. I'm just glad I'm out of my pajamas today. Yeah, yeah. I I think when you talk about recalling moments from the past and the brain fog 
of that first few years, mm-hmm. uh, just for people listening, especially those who have gone through traumatic loss and or suicidal loss, which is its own form of trauma, it's normal to not remember events. And I'll, I'll, I'll share this maybe on a smaller level. My wife, Christy, went through a, a small T trauma, um, small T, so toxic stress, but it was a traumatic event. And for about a month, Terry, she couldn't remember where she put a pair of electric scissors. We searched everywhere. And at one point, she even insinuated that I put the scissors in a donation box and brought them to a place because we couldn't find them anywhere and we were getting rid of stuff. And I said, listen, I can remember this clearly. The scissors were not in the donation box. And after that month, another month went by and she was just mad because she couldn't remember where they were. And you know what I did? I went out and bought two more pairs of electric scissors just because I'm like, listen, if these are so important to you, we'll get them. And then she was mad because she says, if we find them, now we're going to have four pairs of scissors or whatever. And I, we don't need that many scissors. And I said, listen, if we find them, um, then we'll just either sell these or we'll give them away or whatever. But it's last week, we were downstairs in the basement looking for something else. And there were two boxes of scissors. It almost three months. And she said, she said to me, well, she said a swear word. I can't say it here because there may be children listening, but she said a swear word. And then she said, I don't even remember putting these here. And that I'm, I'm telling you, that was a little T trauma. And it was enough to effectively erase the memory for, well, forever, because she still doesn't remember putting them there. Mm-hmm. What happens in toxic stress and trauma is that our brain goes to doing and stops thinking. And I really appreciate the metaphor of the fuse box. I don't know if your counselor gave that to you or you came up on your own with that, but that's exactly what happens. And if you are struggling to remember or struggling to think, or you're in a brain fog and you just, that's okay. That's okay. I think the, when I think about, you know, I want to get to your book a little bit, but you know, one breath, one step, repeat. That's enough. It is enough that you get out of bed. It is enough that you move forward. It is enough that you figure out how to go. And if you have an external or an internal pressure to do more than what you're capable of, that is not of God. Yeah, I I think um, the memory thing correct and, and here's the other thing i'm going to sag on that um best i can i think it's it's taken me years to learn self-compassion mm-hmm. and to sit there and go hey you know what 
Yep, tonight you you made two dinners, <laughs> one in the microwave, one in the oven. <laughs> and 10 minutes later, you realize that you're committed to making two dinners and you were, you know, it was just that boom, boom. And the kids look at you like, what the world? But you're correct. I think it's in the first year, you have to, and again, I know it sounds so difficult and almost impossible, but you have to start learning to be gentle on yourself because remember, if I were to approach you, Josh, with a loss, how would I approach you? With kindness, gentleness, and grace. And why won't I do that to myself? But I am most critical of myself, right? And so it's taking this Dutchman years to learn to go, hey, you know what? Sorry, right. you couldn't find your glasses because they're on the top of your head. You know, it's like, <laughs> just be, be kind to yourself because there will be moments. And you know what? It's all right. It's it's part of that curve. It's it's yeah. part of the dimension of grief. From again, you got to remember you're you're starting a whole new life story. Again, whether your mother died, your child died, your spouse died, you are starting a new chapter. And as the book closes, I think that's part of grief's job, if I may. And God, how God, why God created was to get us from point A to point B. Okay, and that navigational journey is unique for each of us, but it's it is a journey. But yeah, again, please, as a listener, please be kind to yourself. Let, let's riff on that for a bit. Cause I, I feel like this is a, when I meet with people who are in grief, they have no problem. Well, that's not true. It's easier for them to show compassion to others, but the self-compassion piece is a challenge. And I believe that that is directly linked to shame, that that is directly linked to the story that we tell ourselves. We all have an inner critic, every human being. In fact, research shows that the average human has 5,400 self-talk statements, plus or minus every day. And 80% of them are critical and negative and repeat and repeat day after day. And so we all have that inner critic. It's there. It is not of God. I believe that the inner critic is a tool of the evil forces and the devil himself in the world to keep us from connecting to God and other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yet, and yet, in traumatic loss, that shame is intensified, and then we tell ourselves a story. If if you're willing to just go on a short journey with me here, Terry, what was one of those stories that you told yourself? That story that you told yourself, that, that negative statement. Yeah. So I'm not sure where to start on this, but let's start here. When Marlis died, obviously a part of me died. And people will say, well, you lost half your heart. And I would agree with that. I would agree with the fact that, hey, you know what? Your mind is all jumbled. But I would even go, this is my theology. I also believe at times your soul can have fracture lines. And I think my grief over this whole process brought me to that level, Mm. which then also, again, crescendoed in my head of the aspect of, well, what is your importance now? Because the would-haves and the should-haves and the could-haves they went into my cafeteria every day and ate my lunch in front of me. Okay. Mm. It's there. 
Mm-hmm. And so this self-critical part of maybe I've done that, maybe I've done that, because again, I don't have answers, right? There's no answers. She was here, she was gone. And so right. only she knows what was in her mind. But I wonder, I want resolution on that as a yeah. logical, I want resolution, but, but what is the truth for this? And then it even defaulted further to the point of, you know, maybe you're not worthy of love. Mm. Maybe you don't belong. Mm. And and the lowest point was a state of deflation for me, not depression, but I think if I, again, you're a therapist, I think below depression is deflation where it's like, I just lost my entire, who are you? I don't even know who I am anymore. Yep. And at that point in time, um, I wish I could remember, but I read, I, for whatever reason, I was on Google and I found uh, a Greek word called paistivo, I believe. And much like you, you uh, I got a matching tattoo on my forearm, much like you do. A little different, obviously. Um, but anyway, it's there and it's Paistivo. It's in Greek. And it basically says, I believe in God. Mm. I believe in heaven. I believe that Maros is there. Mm. I believe I have purpose. I believe I have value. I believe I belong. Mm. And you know how long it has taken me to be able to add that last statement to this? Mm. it's easy to share the first three but to say you know what terry doesn't belong or terry's implying he he thinks he doesn't belong is really that state of deflation and so i put it on my forearm so when i see it at work it reminds me in a very concise almost life mission statement yeah you have value you belong you are important you have worth i have worth and so i hope that answers your question but that is the it completely does i was reading in genesis a few weeks ago it's a passage that i read a lot in genesis 3 which you and i are familiar with the story and account of creation uh for those maybe not familiar and you're listening uh genesis is the origin story of the human existence and the account of Genesis in one and two is that God is good and out of his love creates everything. And the pinnacle of his creation is human beings. And for the first two chapters, everything is right with the world. And then chapter three comes in and all of a sudden, Everything is not as it should be because of a singular lie that the devil himself tells to human beings. And that is God essentially does not love you. And you can be like God and you don't need him. And in that moment, once they believe that lie, they, and it says, they knew they were naked. And they were ashamed. They covered up and they hid. And there's this really beautiful and heartbreaking phrase. It says in Genesis that God comes into this garden that he's created in the cool of the day. And he calls out to the man and the woman because they're hiding. And he says, Where are you? And they won't come out because they know that they're naked. They know they have shame. They need to cover up. 
And when they finally come out, the man says, we were hiding from you because we were naked. We were ashamed. And this is the heartbreaking statement. God says, who told you that? Who told you you needed to cover up? Who told you you needed to withdraw? Who told you that somehow because of what you did, you are not enough? And I think one of the questions that I ask people a lot when they're in that shame story or that story of I'm not enough or I'm not good enough or I don't belong or I could have or I should have or I would have, I ask, well, who told you that? Did you tell you that? I don't, God didn't. God doesn't do that. And I really, I appreciate your willingness to say, I had to start telling myself a new story that was true. So much so that I had to tattoo it on my arm so I wouldn't forget. Well, I'm deeply humbled by what Terry was willing to share with us and the vulnerability that he showed. One thing that stands out to me is that as Terry has shared with us what he has gone through, he was also willing to share how his loss and grief led him to a point of shame and telling a story about himself that wasn't true. And how important it was for him to anchor in the truth of who he is and remind himself of that as he continues on throughout his life. And I think that's a really important thing for us to land on. If you're going through a season of loss and grief, it's common to have a shame story or a negative story that you repeat in your head. And I like to tell my clients and people that I meet with, when you have a story like that, you want to confront it with truth and ask the question, is this kind? Is this true? Is this helpful? Terry needed to tattoo it on his arm. You may need to write it on a note card. But if you're in a season of navigating grief and you've got a shame story, first of all, I want to encourage you, listen to the next episode with Terry because he's going to continue on to give us some helpful tips of how to navigate that. But also reach out to us at chaplaincy at fearlessfollower.org or go to our website, fearlesschaplaincy.org. We would love to help connect with you, point you to resources, and maybe even get you into a place where you can start to heal through that season of grief or that shame story that you're experiencing. If you know someone who's been impacted by suicidal loss, just share this podcast with them. And if you'd like for us to come in potentially to your workplace or organization to talk about things like depression and suicide and some of the realities that seem a little more challenging in our daily lives, we would love to help. And you can find more information at our website. You can also reach out to us directly. Join us next time as Terry continues the conversation on suicidal loss and grief and continue this conversation on how we navigate intense emotions in our lives. We'll see you next time.